Hello and welcome to the latest Forever Blue podcast, which is slightly different this one because it's actually a replay of a radio programme I did on Tameside Radio with Nader Manua, a 40-minute chat with him about his life and career. Thanks very much to charleslouis.co.uk, who of course are chartered mortgage advisors and are the sponsors of the Forever Blue podcast. Thanks for listening, hope you enjoy it. 3.6 FM, Radio. Hello, I'm Ian Cheeseman. This is Tameside Radio on 103.6 FM. And uh, at this time on a Saturday afternoon, I like to speak to people who are from the sporting world. And today is no exception. Um, a footballer who played for Manchester City, who grew up locally uh, in Clayton, uh, and also was involved, uh, but on the other side, of that famous 2012 title-winning season when Sergio Aguero scored and the rest is history. Uh, that man is Nadam Anua, who joins me now. Hiya, Nadam. How are you doing? Hey, I'm very good, thank you. How are you? Now, you obviously uh, were a lad who lived your dreams, so I'd lo- love to know a little bit about your story because um, you came up through the youth ranks and you played alongside other kids and presumably because you were a blue from from birth I guess or certainly from a very young age you lived the dream what's it like living the dream oh, um, you know I think I appreciated it more after I left you know because I, that's when I started to realise that not everybody has the opportunity to play for their hometown team to come through the academy and all that stuff and I, I didn't take it for granted but I just felt it was normal. But then as soon as I left, I realized how lucky I was to be able to do that. Because so many people would love to do that, whether from whether professionals or, you know, just normal people on the street. And to have actually done it, played in that arena and played in front of those fans. Like, you know, I was one of those fans. And it was, it was absolutely incredible. Did you, as a kid, realize very soon that you had this... I don't know, is it God-given talent? Is it something that you, would, you, you got through being particularly... Uh, trained? How would you describe it? Is it God-given talent that you had? Um, I think I had certain physical things, but in terms of uh, just ability as well, I was always one of the better players within my age group for all the uh, teams that I played for. I think when I was probably eight, nine years old, I was playing a couple of ages up as well. Um, so it was, I would say I was one of the better players, but I was doing I was doing quite well in uh, athletics as well and both of the sporting things. But it was never... I was never the guy actually who solely pinned down football. For as much as I, uh, for as much as I loved it, I was doing lots of other things as well. Like I used to love athletics just the same. I used to be doing all my school work and doing playing for all the school teams. I guess I just loved just playing sports. To be honest with you, it could athletics have been something you'd have gone into because I guess at the very early stages of your career, you don't think, oh, I can make some money out of this because <laughs> most people don't. So could you have gone in a, an athletics direction rather than professional football? Yeah, I think I could have done because, to be honest, when I came in full-time with football at uh, 16, I was actually ranked in the top five in terms of sprinters for my age group in the nation, whereas for City, I was just one of the players within a team. So you could argue that in that moment, I seemed to be on a better path towards success if I would have carried on with athletics. But the way things panned out, as soon as you come in full-time with football, you can't really give that type of focus athletics anymore, which is what I was doing previously when it was there. It was more part-time in the academy. But, you know, it's a decision I don't necessarily regret anyway, so I'm, I'm all good. So were you a sprinter? or I mean, I'm guessing from the shape of your body that power was more important <laughs> than maybe endurance. 
Listening to me and Jesus, <laughs> 200 meters and beyond is way too far for me. <laughs> way too far for me. Less is more. Less is more. <laughs> so is that why you ended up being a defender? Because uh, because it was all about short distances rather than doing all the running that all the midfielders do? Well, you say that, but when I was in the academy, from 10 through to 16, I was actually playing up front. And I was playing in defence for my school. And playing up front, I scored a lot of goals and stuff like that. Um, I was playing up front with Ishmael, Miller, and a few other people. And as I say, it was, it was a lot of fun. I think that my best season was when I was 14. And I was playing side off playing under 16 in Sister City. Finished the year with maybe 42, 43 goals. So that wasn't too bad. But then I think as I just got older, I decided to see maybe I'd be better suited to playing back there. And then, lo and behold, within two years of coming in full-time, I was, I was playing for the first team. You had quite a rise to fame, didn't you? Tell, tell me about, you, you were born in Nigeria. I mean, obviously, that's your, you know, that's your background. Um, can you, how long were you there and how, how much do you remember of your time in Nigeria? Yeah, I was there for five years and I remember, I remember a few bits, but not really significant bits, if you know what I mean. So I was born there, and that's ultimately always going to be where I'll call home because that's where my that's where my blood is, that's where my parents are from, that's where all my like in the, all my extra family is from. But then I was raised in Manchester, I was raised in Mancunian, so I also see that as home, if you know what I mean. But in terms of my makeup, home will always be Nigeria. So can can you actually remember much about the country? I presume you've you've visited it in in your years since you became a Mancunian, but can you remember it when yeah. you were little? Yeah, just a little bit, just a little bit in terms of where we live. That was pretty much it, just day-to-day type stuff. But then it's hard because I was still only like four or five years old. And I look at my five-year-old daughter now and I'm thinking, I wonder if she remember all this when she gets to my age. I'd like to think she would, but you never know. Yeah, I suppose that's right. You look at it through your eyes of your own kids, don't you? Um, so what was yeah. your what was what are the memories of, of... You grew up in Clayton, didn't you? Was that sort of like playing football out in the streets and that sort of thing? You know, it wasn't even Clayton. Clayton was probably a step up. I was actually in Mars Plate. Um, so that was, there was basically playing in the fields behind the house, playing for school and stuff like that. Um, I, I played for FC Clayton in terms of my Sunday league team. But that was, as I say, it's like going on the 10, 15 minutes away. But yeah, that's, that was it, basically. Back then it was just street football or just going out into the field and just playing for hours and then because the weather was good enough anyway. And yeah, that was... That was basically my football upbringing, just being outside and just playing with your friends, jumpers for goalposts, all that classic stuff. No need for stretching, no need for pre-activation, no need for whatever. It's literally just go out and just play and keep playing until you fall over. Now, obviously, I, I know Vincent Company um, has a career from outside of football, which I'm guessing he started quite early. And, and I know you've you've got qualifications uh, you're obviously a lot cleverer than me in terms of business qualifications and things like that. Was that something that you were aware, you know, you were involved in and aware of as a kid as well? Yeah, basically for me, I wasn't allowed to really take part in any sport unless I was doing well in school. That's something which my parents put in straight away. So that's another reason why I didn't put all my eggs into the football and basket because I always knew that it was conditional. It was almost like it was a reward as opposed to something which was just given to me for free. So the school stuff was always very, very important. I'd, if it came down to it, I would have missed games, missed training sessions if I needed to catch up with stuff going on at school because that was always going to be the, the biggest thing in terms of my overall life. 
And my parents always try, always quick to put that into my mind. Just remember this, you have to do this, you have to do this. And as a consequence of that, I just, that's what, that's the way that I used to be. So Nadam, obviously your parents uh, have had a big influence on you. Um, both equally or in what way have they influenced you? Um, I think they were just, they weren't, they weren't like, tough to me in terms of ways which are unacceptable but they were always trying to instill the importance of things which will actually matter in the long term I think sometimes for certain other people they would just look at short term things that relate to money and this that and the other but I think they just really helped me try and become a better person through making better decisions and not just focusing on something which you know it could be if you, I think for a young player now, for example, if you focus on purely trying to make it as a footballer, you almost like you forget the fact that the majority of people never make it. And even those that do don't have long careers. But I was always told about bigger picture and making sure you have the right relationships with people and just making sure you're a good person, someone that people can believe in, you know, stuff like that. So, yeah, my mom and dad are very much responsible for that. And they always supported me as well with everything that I was doing, as long as it was always with the right intention. Were either of them sports people before you know before you got into it? Um, not necessarily to the same extent. Uh, they were both good at sports. My dad played a little bit of football back in Nigeria. My mom was good with things like table tennis and so on. But in terms of having a a bit of a, um, a a benefit based on what they did previously, there was nothing really like that. So all the training and stuff which I received was coming more so from the people who I would play for. And, who'd be coaching me and stuff would never really come from home. Were you good at school? Because you, you said that that was an important part and you, your mum and dad had got you really well balanced. Did you excel at school? Was that something academically that you were a natural at as well as being good at sport? Uh, I wouldn't say I was necessarily a natural at it. I think I, I was bright in some ways, but I had to work hard for a lot of things. And say when it came to GCSEs and stuff, I, I, did, I did pretty well at that. And then when it came to A-levels, I did better at A-levels did GCSEs, even though I'd come into football full-time at that point. But that was because of the hard-working mentality, which they basically pushed upon me from when I was young. So as I, said, I, got top, I basically got top marks for my A-levels. And that was a, a time, as I say, when I was in football full-time. Because you can just find a way to just do the right things and learn how to do, learn how to do that. And thankfully, I, I was capable of doing that. I mean, I mentioned Vincent Company before, but before your era, before your time, uh, Paul Power um, was famously a graduate and finished his graduation studies while he was at City. Um, is that yep. is that a parallel to you then? Were you still getting getting sort of qualified as as you were starting your footballing career? Yeah, essentially, essentially, I was doing. Uh, as I say, I was finished off my A levels whilst I was playing, and then I did a, an accounting course for a year as well. Um, shortly after that. So I was I was still doing stuff and it was I overall I like I really enjoyed it I really did enjoy it with the accounting thing I didn't enjoy the subject as much as I thought I would have done otherwise I would have carried on doing it for longer because then I start thinking to myself is this what is this what I want to do after I finish and ultimately it wasn't so for the years after that I'd be looking into other things and trying to figure out what I'd like to do um, come the end of my career and that was from essentially the age of 21 22 which seems crazy but Always having a, a bigger picture on things, I think it puts you in a place whereby you don't really worry about as much anymore. Well, I know you're in you're in America now, and you, you I suppose you're coming towards the end of your career. You're at Real Salt Lake, am I right? Yeah. 
That's right, yeah, that is so, correct. So have you thought about what you'll do after? I mean, have you thought whether you'll do what... I know Vincent was a teammate of yours, so he's a good one to look at. You know, he's gone into management and uh, and and running a whole club at Anderlecht. Would you fancy that? Would you would you make a break from sport completely? What what direction do you think you're going when you hang your boots up? You know, that's a great question. And the the, res- the normal response would be to be like, yeah, I'm going to be a coach. I want to be a manager. I want to be this. I want to be that. But for me, I think maybe because of the way that. Um, I was raised and so on. Football was always something which I loved doing, but it wasn't something which necessarily defined me. And I put everything into it in terms of like, this is all I'm going to do. So I, when I'm done, actually, I look forward to just normal life, to be honest with you. Like I do, as I say, I love football, but I also love the idea of being able to create my own schedule or being able to go out and say, what annual leave, I know that I can go to someone's wedding. I know that I can do this or do that. And in terms of coaching and management, that's not necessarily what you'll get. And as a consequence, it's not really something which I which I intend on doing. I credit people who do it, but I enjoy my home life arguably right now more than the playing side of it. And that's not because I dislike playing. It's just because I just love being around my kids and my wife and just going out and having adventures and watching three little people grow up. Well, we're all getting used to that a bit more at the moment while we're uh, we're in lockdown because we're, we're spending more time with our families. And maybe one of the good things that will come out of all this is that people will appreciate their families, you know, and, and having spent a bit more quality time with them. Although I suppose it could go the other way, couldn't it? And you, you get to the point where you don't want to see your family anymore. Exactly. It's funny because for me, like, I, I love it because the, the off-season over here is essentially three months. And I was in America for two and a half of those months last year. And I loved it. I enjoyed taking my uh, my daughters, my kids to school or picking them for this, taking them here, taking them there, doing this, doing that. But then I know certain people who in this time have realized that they're not ready to retire because they really need to be in the game. And they say they can't spend so much time at home. But as I say, I'm the, I'm the antithesis of that. Well, whatever way you're going, I'm sure you'll be uh, successful. I'm speaking to Nadam Anua. Chinadam Anua, if you want to give him his, uh, his full name. Um, who is, mm-hmm. of course, a former Manchester City footballer, still playing the game in the States. And we'll chat some more to, to Nadam right after this. I'm Ian Cheeseman. This is Tameside Radio. Thanks very much for your company. We're, we're talking sport this, this, uh, this hour. In particular, we're talking football. And in particular, we're talking to Nadam Anua, a uh, former Manchester City player. Or is it really Nadam Anua, her? Uh, Nadam? Um, that, that's the correct way of pronouncing it, it, it isn't it? Yeah, yeah. There's a there's a correct way based on if you're Nigerian or not. But Nader Manuha is like that's perfectly fine. Uh, if you say that, I know you're talking to me. <laughs> now tell uh, tell me about your City career. Obviously, you break into the first team, um, having come through the ranks with uh, with with other players that were around you, Micah Richards and um, Lee Croft was around then, wasn't he? And uh, Stephen Island. That, that yeah, was your but- era, wasn't it? Um, what what was it like when you when you eventually get to the point where you realise you're going to play in the first team? Do you know it was crazy because I I always I was in the academy and I wanted to play for the first team, but I wasn't one of those people that was infatuated by it. More than anything, I just loved playing with my friends in the team, and we were successful. And we were playing for City, like that was always a great great feeling. And then all of a sudden, even though I trained with the first team on a few occasions and so on, I'll never forget we played United in a in a reserve game on a Tuesday night. It was like a big game. I had a big battle with Jim Richardson. I think the crowd was like five, 6,000 or something. This was at the, the track next to the Etihad. And then I was at, I think I was at college or something two days after. Or the day after, then I get a call from the kit man, Les Chapman. He says, oh, what number do you want? I was thinking, like, what, what are you talking about? 
because you know you're you're in the squad for the weekend. I was like, what? I didn't and I didn't expect that. Like I just thought I was just playing reserve team football, and then it just happened like that. And I was in the squad for that game, played in the uh, cup game in the midweek against Arsenal, and then from that point onwards, I was basically in every squad from then for the next like eight, seven, eight years or whatever it was. So it was it was strange. It just it just seemed to happen. And obviously, we've seen other people uh, blow the trail for us beforehand, but when it finally ha- when it happens to you, it's just it's just an amazing feeling. Like it's not something I ever expected. And to get the opportunity to do it was, it was truly special. You seem a very whenever I've spoken to you, and I've, I've known you for quite a long time now. You seem a very laid back sort of character. You don't seem to show emotions yeah. a lot, although I can see things going on behind your eyes <laughs> and in your hand because yeah. you always give yeah. me one of them crushing handshakes whenever I meet you. Um, <laughs> but in terms, it's always good to see. You, that's why. <laughs> when uh, when you when you did that breakthrough, would inside even if you didn't show it outside, was it an, is it an emotional time for you? Yeah, hundred percent, it was. It was absolutely incredible because I'd started on a path where I was actually having a career. Obviously, no amount of time was guaranteed. It could have been one game. It could have been 100 games. could have been 1,000 games. But nothing was guaranteed at that moment. But to just get the opportunity to to wear this shirt, to be around these players who I've been watching for a few years, to play in that stadium, like it was so, so surreal. Because, you, as I say, it was only a year, two years previous when I was in school playing for them on a, on a Saturday morning. You know, to, to then be in this position, like I'm doing what? people dream of doing I'm doing it for my team and these people like playing behind a Sean Wright Phillips like I, I, when I was younger I was ball boy for Sean Wright Phillips in the youth cup when I was younger I was ball boy for him just in general at main round and now all of a sudden this is a guy we're all going we're walking out together to the same crowd that was there now being somewhere else he's smaller than you though isn't he yeah <laughs> yeah exactly yeah that was the funny bit I was kneeling down behind the goal at the north stand and I was still bigger than him but yeah those were um <laughs> Incredible. Like, look at. I think I carry, um, I carry more love for it now, looking back, than I would have really been able to appreciate back then, because I didn't understand the bigger picture and everything that happens from that point. But as I say, looking back now, like those those years are absolutely incredible. You probably the answer to this is probably going to be no, given what you've just said. But were you aware of how fragile this was? That you know you were getting your chance. You didn't. You can now look back on it with hindsight and say, yeah, I played there for seven, eight years or whatever and I played with these players and had a great time. But as you're playing each game as it goes along, there's no guarantee that you're going to be playing again next week or you're going to get another contract or you're not going to get injured or anything. It's, it's a very uh, precarious career route that you, you've taken when you become a professional footballer, isn't it? Yeah, 100%. I think you start to realise that as you get older when you notice how much player turnover there is every single season especially as teams start to get better and better and try and want to achieve more. Basically, if you're not finding success that season, people ask why, and inevitably they'll look at the playing stuff. And if you're not someone that starts week in, week out for that team and is performing well, you're essentially up for, you could be getting transferred, you could be getting moved on, you might never see the first team again. It's like a real high-pressure situation. And then add to that, the few years when we were at City where we were closer to the bottom than we were to the top. Like This is the point where you step out and it's not... a game anymore amongst your friends you've got to do this because you need to pay bills people that you're playing with need that money to be able to keep their families going they can't afford to drop down to the next division and take a 50% pay cut and stuff like this so if you're not really going to be pulling your weight you're essentially 
you, you, there's no reason for them to keep you. But stuff which you don't realize in the moment because you're only very insular. You're like, oh, I'm playing. This is the team I'm doing well in training. I should play next week and blah, blah, blah. But then before you know it, like even, sorry, to name a very specific example. So I was in the squad. The very first game I was involved in, I was, in, I was on the bench on new sub. It was when, City beat, when we beat Chelsea in 2004. They only lost Chelsea had all season. So that happened. Then on the Wednesday, we, played, we think we played Arsenal in the League Cup. I played. And I remember seeing on Thursday or Friday, Sky Sports News saying that City are expected to keep this player or like myself and I think with Jonathan Delaye we're supposed to stay in the squad and we're supposed to be on the bench or play or whatever and then when Saturday came we were 19th and 20th man and we were watching the game in the stands so that was like a reminder straight away that even though you've done well in some sense don't believe that it's going to carry on because inevitably you can just be dropped just by that and you know that's, that's fair enough because so we didn't have a spot we didn't have a spot secured at that point even though we played well in that game in midweek but that was the lesson for us in that moment that doesn't matter how well you do it it's never a guarantee that you get another start and you've used you've used um, Jonathan but obviously had his brother Nathan as well the Delaria brothers who were in and around the yep. squad at that particular time uh, and, and I've I've known Nathan and, and done commentaries with him in the past lovely lovely lad and from a great family as well um, but they didn't make it to the same level that you did so given that they were mates of yours, I'm assuming, if ever you needed reminding of keeping your feet on the ground, I suppose it was them not progressing at the same rate as you. Is that right? Yeah, you could say that. You could say that. Although it's just, it's just little things, little bits of good fortune, whether it's an injury here in terms of somebody in the team, somebody in the team that creates a slot for you or just an injury yourself when you could have been playing, but then you fall out of it. You could say, like, they, they're an example, but they did both play professionally. So you could argue that going through the academy, even though they didn't play as many games for City as I did, they did have some type of career, whether it's for a year, whether it's for 10 years or whatever, they did have that. Um, and even, say for me, Micah, I think, made his debut, I think, in the league, because I got injured when we were going down to play Arsenal. And there was talk I was going to play, but in the end, I didn't play. But that allowed him to step forward, you know. So you need that level of good fortune. And unfortunately, not everyone is going to be able to have that same level of good fortune has to get started because Michael was always going to be good enough. So it was about the timing and that was his moment. So like I say, it's just, it's one of those things. I, I don't think, I don't see them as having had failed careers because we came through together and the fact that the three of us managed to play for our, for our hometown team is, uh, is, is still special more than say the majority of people would ever be able to say. I was watching a documentary on Netflix about Formula One. Um, I don't know if you've seen it or have you any interest in that, but Basically, behind the scenes, it reminded you at the top level of sport just how cutthroat it is because it focused on Pierre Gasly um, losing his seat in the Red Bull car. Uh, and obviously, if people aren't Formula One fans, they won't know what I'm talking about. Uh, but Alexander Albon coming in and replacing him. The two of them were friends. They'd come through karting together. And, you know, one week... One guy, that you know, Gasly might be signing autographs and getting all the adoration, while behind the scenes, this is what the documentary illustrated perfectly, he was under enormous pressure and was getting asked by the press all the time, are you going to get lose your seat next week? And yet, he'd walk out of that meeting and meet a fan who'd be going, can I have a picture, can I have an autograph? And never have I seen it so strongly sort of illustrated, really, the highs and lows of being a, a top sportsman all, all in one moment. Was it ever like that for you? Um, I think it got like that when Mancini came in. 
because for the previous years I'd played a lot of football, whether whether that was under Sven, whether I was under Mark Hughes, under Stuart Pearce, whatever. I played a lot of football. Then all of a sudden, when he came in, I was actually I got injured the game when Mark Hughes got sacked. So I was injured for four to six weeks, and I stayed out for those four weeks. And then when I came back in, there was no real slot for me anymore. I wasn't considered really a starter. I was barely considered for someone who'd come off the bench. And I was, I was very confused at this point. So people would be asking, oh, how would you think about the new manager? What do you think about this? You know, because that's when the club was trying to really push on. And it was the first time where I had to come to grips with the fact that, you know, sometimes there's nothing you can do, whether I was playing well, training well, being positive. Like, you couldn't affect the outcome. But it was an outcome which previously you felt, you felt like you could have done, but now it's been taken away. So that was, yeah, that was that was probably the hardest part for me. But then I could never really come out and vocalize it, the fans or in the press or whatever, because it seems like you just be bad mouthing the manager, which I never, which I never did. But for some reason, things just start to go wrong at that point, and there was and nothing really changed from my own sort of perspective, which is which was a shame, really. It's certainly dog eat dog world. Well, what 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 was the highest moment then, Naden, for you? That the the game, the moment, the goal, the I don't know the the moment that really stands out for you from your time at, at City. In terms of things like atmosphere, while I was still playing, there was I think the quarterfinal second leg against Hamburg, I think it was in the UEFA Cup, where we had flares and stuff like this. I really really enjoyed that game. Um, but aside from that. Um, It'd have to be probably beating United at Old Trafford on the uh, Munich uh, disaster memorial day because that was like, we were, we were, everyone said we were going to lose. Like everyone, because the, the whole population of the earth was basically saying we were going to lose. And they went out there and we, we won. And it wasn't one of those ones where we were, we scraped by or anything like that. Like obviously we didn't have as much possession as there might not have had as many chances, but we left the field feeling like we deserved to get that win we worked hard and we did something which, you know, you could argue was maybe the beginning of the turn in terms of like how that dynamic was going to be. Because it's been a long time, I think, since City had ever gone there and actually gotten a, you know, a result like that. But I always remember as well. I think it was the rise of self. All the goals he scored in his career, he'd always won. And when he scored, I think it, just before half time, I remember going into the dressing room and I was looking at him. I was like, I can't say it, I can't say it, I can't say it, but I'm definitely thinking it. I'm thinking we're going to win this today just because he scored a goal. Fantastic. I mean, as a fan who was in the, who was in the away end for that game, I think, uh, unless I was commentating, I can't remember now, but certainly I'd never seen City win at Old Trafford. The last time before that had yep. been the 73-74 season when Dennis Law did the back heel. So you finally yep. um, did it. And uh, and then since then, City have regularly won at Old Trafford, haven't they? So you, you certainly, certainly set a <laughs> yeah. new tempo for the derbies. Yeah, most definitely did. Like, obviously, it's, it's, not, it's never a guarantee to win against United, but now they have players in that team and staff in that building who go there and they almost expect three points. They're not going there hoping to maybe get a result. They go wherever they go, they expect three points. So to be there, and whereas it was only just, what was it, 12 years ago, whatever, we hadn't won there for 20-odd years. I think it's, um, it's definitely a show that the club was heading in the right direction around that time. 
And you played your part, Nadam. Um, we'll, we'll talk some more in just a second. I'm speaking to Nadam Anua, uh, the former Manchester City defender. Uh, we've got um, some more from Nadam uh, in just a second, but stay with us. You're listening to Tameside Radio. Thanks very much for your company. Um, very proud to be part of the, uh, the, the community of Tameside. And uh, we'll talk some more to Nadam right after this. Ian Cheeseman, this is Ian Cheeseman talking to Nader Manua, the former Manchester City uh, defender here on Tameside Radio. An hour of sport uh, to to help you pass the time on this Saturday afternoon. Uh, now, Nader, you uh, obviously eventually had to leave City. What was that like? Was that a wrench? Yep. Was it was it heartbreaking? How would you describe having to leave City? Well, to be honest, the first time I actually left was to go on loan to Sunderland. And I remember um, I was at home and I was crying with my sisters just because I'd always been at home. You know, that's when the reality of the situation kicks in, that here you are in a situation where everything has been so comfortable and you've been so fortunate, but now you have to go somewhere else. Like Sunderland wasn't that far, but just that whole change in dynamic, because I used to have all my family and friends and everyone so close, but now I'm going somewhere else. So as I say, I remember I cried. But then when it came to leave permanently, it was... Uh, Again, it was just, it was it wasn't as tough a decision as it as it possibly could have been, and that was purely because of the fact that in six months of playing no games whatsoever, I fly, in fact I came on off the bench for one match, and it happened to be the last match before uh, before I moved on the day after, and that was against Wigan, I think. So there was no there's obviously no home for me there anymore. And one thing you realise as a player as time passes is you can't afford to waste years because you'll never be afforded them back, you know. So. If someone said that they they want you to come and they want you to play, and if it's a good enough decision for your family, good enough place to go to, then you kind of have to take it regardless of whether you love being at home or whatever. So it was it, it was hard and it was a change, but it was something that needed to be done. It's ironic that you went to Sunderland because I, I've told you this story before, but um, I remember meeting your mum in the car park at Sunderland when you were a City player. And um, and yeah. I think it was with Fred Eyre, and and she obviously recognised Fred. I'm sure she didn't recognise me, and said, well, "Will you get anywhere near my Nadam?" Uh, and we said, "Well, yeah, we'll be in the press area. Could you give him this packet of biscuits?" And I think she had a, a packet of um, custard creams or something like that. You, you got yeah. those? Did you, you yeah. eat the whole packet when we gave them to you? What, what was all that about? It's supposed yeah, to be a football. Yeah. <laughs> No, listen, as soon as the game's finished, there's like a little two, three-hour spell where I'm, I'm probably not as professional as I should be. But yeah, she was always she was always good for that. But, you know, those, those biscuits would help everyone in the team. So anything that was delivered to me was shout-out amongst my teammates. So I just make sure I'd have as, as much of it as possible. Though. Good excuse, good excuse. Uh, did you enjoy Sunderland? <laughs> I mean, obviously, you didn't just play for Sunderland after City, but did, have you enjoyed what you've done since you were at City? Yeah, most definitely, most definitely. I think um, when I sometimes speak to my friends about looking back and in hindsight, you think you achieved everything you could have achieved. And for me, I think to myself, not fully, but then in the same breath, I've been able to play in the Premier League for a lot of years, been able to play in the Championship for a lot of years and play in like a lot of games. And, you know, I'm probably at 450 odd games now, which is more than I would have thought I would have had about six, seven years ago. And you know, the, the, I haven't necessarily played in the best situations. Like when we were at QPR, there were spells where we were really struggling as a football club. There was so much bad blood inside the place and there's fire allegation and this, that and the other. But then I look, look and I think, well, this was me having a career and playing as a professional, being paid to do the thing that I love. So as a consequence, I can't 
I can't say I'm unhappy with anything. I would have liked to have played for City more to have won something at City, but I wasn't didn't have that opportunity. But shortly after I left, maybe a year or two after, I could go back to being purely a fan again. So to have that as my team, to be one of the best teams in the world, and then to still be able to play elsewhere was uh, was a great feeling. And yet, ironically, you played twice as many games for the QPR. So I suppose the QPR fans will look back and say, you're one of theirs, as well as we look back and say, you're one of ours. <laughs> crazy, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. And with the QPR thing, I, was, like, I think I pat myself on the back because when they were doing those Team of the Decade things, just uh, in, Jan- in December or January, I ended up getting voted into their Team of the Decade. So as a consequence, I, you know, I, think, I guess I did all right. Brilliant. And obviously, you played your part in the 2012 uh, City versus QPR game, but you were playing for QPR. So, Joy Barton was in your team, got sent off, which a lot of City fans were very grateful for. Um, you were in defence yep. when Aguero uh, scored that goal. What was that like from your perspective to be playing against City on what everybody knew potentially could, first of all, be City's greatest day ever, but could it also potentially have been QPR's relegation that day? I think for most of the people I speak to about that game, they only really know it's the City winning the title. They don't really know the outcome of what happened with QPR. But I remember going into it and I was running. It's the only time in probably my career where I was exceptionally nervous because I was thinking of all the different scenarios and the scenarios extended beyond just the field field itself. From, say, that I was getting relegated to me being in Manchester and the team losing or me being in Manchester and we've coffeted a title as a City fan and all this stuff. So there were so many things running through my mind. But the one thing which I never thought about for a single second was the one which it turned out to be, which was one where we, as QPR, lost the game. City won, won the league, but we stayed up as well. Like that, I'd never, I didn't think that was going to be an option because I thought going into the game, we had to get results to stay up. But then instead it went that way. And then it's the only time as well in my career where I've seen both sets of players and both sets of fans, both benches, everybody's celebrating for the last minute of the last game of the season. And it's not celebrating because they say they've both stayed up, but celebrating because, say, one team has won something and the other team has achieved their goal as well. So it was, it was true. It was, it was absolutely incredible. Like, to put it into perspective, City is such a big football club, but then that mum was so large. You had a pitch invasion. You just, there's things you just don't expect to see. But I know. That, I'm, I'm, it meant... Uh, and all that, you know what I mean? Well, obviously, I was commentating that day, and um, as uh, I saw Mark Hughes, obviously, he was the QPR manager that day, start to celebrate. And then, and I said in my commentary, because I didn't know Bolton were the other team that could go down, they were playing at Stoke, and nobody told me that Bolton had lost uh, or or not won anyway. Um, And um, and then I saw the QPR fans celebrating, and I actually said in my commentary, I wondered the QPR fan uh, players are aware of that, and what whilst whether they might lose concentration. Were, were you ever aware of the fact that before that Aguero goal went in, that you were safe? No. So I think it's probably like a split in the team. Most of the defenders didn't have a clue, which is why when Sergio scores that goal, you see three, four of us on the floor. I've got my hands on my head. I'm like stunned. But then when you look at our bench, that's when you realise that what's going on. But some of the attackers, Maybe they knew, which is as a consequence why they were maybe defending the thing just a bit differently. But I wish I would have known. I really, really wish I would have known because just for like 10 seconds, 5, 10 seconds, the stress levels I was feeling in that moment after Sergio scored, it was just enormous to the point where for days afterwards, 
I didn't actually know who scored that goal. Just think I was standing in the stadium after he scored the goal. It's being announced. But I was in such a daze, I didn't know who scored the goal. The most important goal in the city's history, and I didn't have a clue who that was. Didn't how, have a clue. How do you feel when you watch it now? Do, do, you, do you, City fans, obviously, and I know you are a City fan, the hairs on the back of the neck stand up and you think, wow, what a great day that was. Are you able to now park what you being a QPR player and enjoy it, or does it still relive as if you were in the game? Yeah, it still relives like I'm in the game. Like I speak, I speak to Joe and Lesko about this. Like the two of us, we like we do. We've done documentaries on that, so on that uh, game and all that stuff. But we can't. We still can't watch the game. Like I can't bring myself to to watch it over and over. It just feels. It just feels. It just brings up stress. And I think that's him having won the league in that moment. It just brings up so much stress. I just can't do it. Amazing. It's, it's just such an odd situation to be in. Um, for you, you know, yeah. t- as a City fan, to look back on it like that, um, you know, the greatest yeah. moment in Manchester City's probably in, in their history and, and the greatest end to a Premier League season ever, and yet you were yeah. at the other side of it and can't, can't rewatch it. I find that amazing. Yeah, I can't. Obviously, I can't. And I think Jolie and a few other people are probably similar. I just can't. I just can't look back at it. It's just. It, it, I just know how much tension there was in those last few moments, and it is, it is horrendous. Like even. For as much as City won the league, I remember for like 10, 15 minutes before they started scoring, they scored the second and third. They were just like Vinny and uh, Jolin, they were just taking turns, shooting, just walking up and just shooting. He was in total disarray. Mancini had lost his mind. Players were losing their composure. The crowd was getting on edge. Like, And then next thing, there you go, they've won the league and everything feels fine and you'll remember it's been a fairy tale. But listen, within that fairy tale, there was, there was a long spell where things were not going as they would have liked. Well, it's a, it's a day I'll never forget, that's for sure, and for different reasons that you won't. Um, Nadim, it's, it's been a joy to speak to you. Uh, thanks very much uh, indeed for, for telling us uh, your story so eloquently. Uh, good luck for the rest of your playing days at, at Real Salt Lake, and, and uh, we'll speak to you again, I'm, I'm sure, soon. Uh, but uh, hopefully we'll come back to the other side of all this and, and see you playing football again. Yes, sir. Thank you very much, Ian. Good to speak to you. That's uh, Nader Manua joining us on Tameside Radio. I'll be back talking sport again next week. In the meantime, uh, enjoy, enjoy the rest of your day. 